Decalogue, a comics journal podcast. My name is Greg, and on this podcast, we pose the same 10 questions to a different cartoonist each month. Mike Dawson is September's guest. You may know Mike's work from a whole host of places. Recent pieces of his have appeared on sites like The Nib, and he's also the creator of books like Troop 142, Freddie and Me, and Rules for Dating My Daughter. His work covers fiction and memoir, but it's always funny and observant. He also hosts the Process Party Podcast with Zach Soto and his Legacy Haunts comic book decalogue. Mike was previously the host of TCJ.com's first podcast, TCJ Talkies, and to this day, owned to the caprices of WordPress-adjacent podcasting software, comic book decalogue appears in the TCJ Talkies iTunes feed instead of its own spot in iTunes. I don't blame Mike for this, and you shouldn't either. Not his fault. It's computers. And... For the people out there who want me to fight Mike, take his wallet, eat his lunch, not what I'm about. This was a conversation between gentlemen with manners. Here's a real important thing. Uh, at the time of my recording this intro, you can still donate to the Support the Eleven GoFundMe on behalf of the 11 members of the indie comics community recently served with the defamation lawsuits. You can find that through a search with those terms, uh, through the hashtag Defend the Eleven, or GoFundMe dot com slash sbx hyphen support hyphen the hyphen the number 11 for more context of course you can consult some of tcj's reporting on the suit uh but please take this as me over in the opinion column urging you to give these folks a hand and make a donation and once you've done that please enjoy 10 questions with mike dawson Yeah, yeah. Thank you for for that. That sounds great. That's very professional of you. I've never done that. <laughs> I've never checked the levels while I've, I would just hope for the best that every time. Well, anything I can do to delay the task at hand, I guess it's okay. avoidance. Avoidance in all things. <laughs> now you got you got the right idea because you have your questions already done. It does make it easy. I, I will say. Yeah. <laughs> so, question. Number one on the list is, what's the last comic you finished reading? Um, I read two comics recently. Um, I reread uh, The Poor Bastard by Joe Matt, and I also went to the comic book store the other day in an attempt to uh, try to get my way back into mainstream superhero comics, because it always seems like people on Twitter are having such a good time with them. Uh, and I bought a Captain Marvel Carol Danvers trade paperback that the guy at the store told me was a good jumping on point, but it was not. It was I, I had to have read Civil War. I had to know what was going on with Alpha Flight at this point. They've all changed, um, so it's bewildering. And I just don't think I have that in me anymore. That uh, the thing I had when I was a kid, when I like the fact that I didn't know what was going on made me hungry to find out. Now right. I find it just frustrating. <laughs> No jumping on point should involve Alpha, alpha Flight, I think. Yes. I don't well, know how alpha controversial that is to the modern reader, but... Yeah, well, the, well, Sasquatch is in the background, but he looks all different, and no one's explaining like who he is anymore, and there's not a lot of establishing happening, so I, I found it frustrating, even though I kind of want to... Like, I would like to do that. Or, you know, it does seem like people do enjoy reading these comics, but I just can't find a way in, even though I try. 
I'm in a similar position. I liked uh, Grant Morrison's Batman run a lot, although now I suppose that's ancient history. The only superhero comics I can I that I actively enjoy or seek out at the moment are like uh, Copra and '70s Kirby. I wish okay. there were more. Um, Garrett Morrison did that new X Men, right? Because that was like a brief thing I jumped in on when that happened. Although the funny thing about that is that I don't know if this happened to you at your age. I'm not sure how old you are. I have a thing where like that doesn't feel like that long ago to me. New X Men, but that's probably like 20 years ago now. <laughs> it's close. I think it started. Gosh. Probably around 2000, 2001. It was shortly after the first X-Men film, I think. Yes, yeah, so that's what I was thinking. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a fairly new comic that I read, but no, that's a, that was almost two decades ago that I read that. Um, but I also read Joe Matt's Peep Show, which is a book that I had loved like a great deal when I was uh, like in college and after, and I hadn't read it in a while, so sort of interesting to go back and give a look at that considering how things have changed um, in terms of, like, the way people read comics, like sad, ad sack, masturbating men comics. Sure, <laughs> sure. Are you able to read his stuff outside the lens of your own sad boy comics pieces? I mean, I, I always i am going to have a soft spot for his stuff, and I do like that stuff. It, it's just so curious to, like, be like, this feels like it wouldn't get made these days, and if it did, it would, you know, I don't feel like it would have the sort of appeal that it had because um, the audience is just different. Um, sure. For the best. As a, a practitioner of comics, do you feel like his stuff still holds up? Or there too, are there some things that have aged poorly that have held up surprisingly well? Well, I mean, there's all the stuff that uh, comes up a lot with autobio comics, but it does come up a lot with me, this sort of idea of like exploiting other people. I felt like when I was in in the late 90s, um, when a lot of that stuff was getting made, I, and I was very on board with this idea of, you know, art Art is more important than, you know, other people. Uh, <laughs> and I don't really, and I feel like I've changed a lot, and I feel like, uh, and it did sort of disturb me now um, in a way that I used to, like, think was like, wonderful about this, this the work. But it, it sort of, I find it more unsettling than I did, like, earlier. I like that book quite a bit. I think it, I think it is very coherent, and I actually like Spent. And I think Spent uh, always, to me, struck me as like sort of like the last word on sort of sad boy masturbating comics. I wonder if you ever read that. Did you read that one? No, no. Um, I think the the point at which Spent was highest in the comics canon, let's say, I think I was in college uh, okay. during those years. So I was at once uh, forming my my consciousness of comics and yet also very busy and had a lot of stuff to read. Uh, so no, I've okay. not read Spent. Okay, well, if you want to see the you know the final word on <laughs> those types of comics, I think Spent is sort of you know you know goes as far as it can go uh, with that type of thing. With respect to featuring people from your life in your comics, uh, I posed this question to Lauren Weinstein in the last episode, but it's germane to your work too. Have your children yet, or I imagine your daughter's older than your son and probably reading more often, but have your children read any or many of your autobio pieces that feature them? Yes. Uh, my daughter, like, she reads Freddie and Me. She has in her room. She likes it. I mean, obviously, it's interesting to her because it's, you know, telling a lot about the story about her family before she was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and she also, by rules for dating my daughter book, she really likes that. And she does read it. Um, and I do think there's definitely strips in there she didn't quite get. Or, like, you know, I think that happens to the kids that they'll read things even if they don't understand some things. 
Um, but she's 10, so there's definitely certain stories that she's, uh, I mean, there's a lot of the stories she gets, but then some of the heavier stuff, I don't think she's quite got her head around, like all the climate change and, you know, things like that, because I don't, I don't really want to add to her anxiety. <laughs> you know what this is about. Uh, right. As soon as you mentioned that volume, I was compelled to wonder if, like, what she made of the pieces where you were quite uh, explicitly, you know, worrying about her future and the world she has in store. How much of that does register? I can't tell because she doesn't sort of ask that sort of thing. I think she sort of still sees the book as very much as like a novel thing that she's just very excited that it's sort mm-hmm. of about her. So there's not, there's never been a part where she's like, "What's this bit about? Like, <laughs> why are you concerned about you know the the planet that we're being left and things like that?" Um, but I think it's just exciting to her, you know, that the, the book is, you know, she she likes that, you know, kids like attention. <laughs> All right, I'll ask our second question now, which is what cartoonist doesn't get enough praise? Uh, this one I thought about a little bit beforehand. Um, and the person that I I want to mention because I just like his work so much and he sort of had a brief moment or I think like people were sort of really into his stuff and then he sort of, I mean, he faded away because he's not doing any stuff, but uh, do you know Jonathan Bennett? No, I don't. Oh, okay. Well, he had... Um, in the initial run of Mome, uh, the, the Fanagraphics anthology that was published around 2005 until, I don't know, 2008, 2009, um, he was a regular contributor. And his sort of slice of life, autobiocomics are probably the best, in my opinion. Really? Like some of the best I've seen. Um, like, were there, they really do manage to pull off the feat of, like, being not about much, but actually having a lot of, like, quirk and character and, mm-hmm. like, small details and, like, really funny you know, little asides and small things in panels. Just, I just think he's like it's sort of masterful, um, especially Mom Number One, the the first one. Um, he had a, a short comic called Dance with Adventures, which I thought was I think it's just such a fantastic strip. It's so funny and inventive, um, and all it is is him uh, waking up one morning uh, and seeing a pile of garbage across the street from his apartment and going over to pick through it to see if there's any like trash that he likes. Like uh, there was some LPs. Um, but from that, like, a lot comes out of it. And he went on to do a lot of other short comics throughout Mom. Like, he was, like, one of the regular contributors, probably the first, like, 10, 11, like, volumes. And then I don't really know what happened to him. So so that's – I don't fault everybody else for not giving him enough praise. He sort of hasn't uh, been making comics, uh, you know, even though he's, like, making work very regularly, like, through Mom. Yeah, that was someone I wanted to mention. I, the other one I thought of – I was thinking about um, Sarah Glidden. Who obviously does get plenty of, you know, she does have a certain amount of like uh, respect in that, you know, she's she's good with a good publisher, and I think mm-hmm. I get the impression she she's taken very seriously, and you know, all those sorts of things. But I really liked Rolling Blackouts. I think it's difficult for any book to really break through these days. But that was something like why I'm like I think this is just such a well done story, um, and well put together comic that uh, I think we should all just like really love it. And also, I just love that it was actually about the Iraq War, which, you know, almost nothing is. So I think that was great. Now, I had sort of a side question uh, following that second question for you also. Correct me if I'm wrong about any of this, but you are a Scottish transplant to the States, right? That is, yes, essentially correct. I'm more British. Uh, I was born in Scotland, but I grew up in England, and that's a big deal in my household. Sure. According to my dad. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, so he considers me Scottish, but I would be British. But uh, so why do you, are you familiar with some Scottish comics? Well, I wanted to ask you uh, for your perspective on who are the great 
Scottish cartoonists. And if there are any of, of note that you think might be new to U.S. readers. Well, there's two comics. Uh, it may have been done by the same cartoonist, and I'm not totally sure what the guy's name was because it was not really front and center in the comics. Um, but there's a strip called Urwilly. Okay, perfect. I was going to ask you specifically, my follow-up question, the follow-up question was where the guy who draws Urwilly stands between, you know, Ernie Bushmiller and Scott Adams on the massive mainstream. Oh, like in Scotland? Yeah. I mean, so the other one, he I think it's the same guy. It was a strip called The Bruins. And these are like incredibly well done strips like very well cartooned dense strips like with full bodies and like an action in like each panel sort of like uh you know how gabrielle bell like kind of puts a, a full body in every panel oh yeah you know, it's not like a lot of headshots it's like but this is like a sunday page um you know i think you know i remember the bruins ones always being like nine rows well not nine but like eight or nine rows like very dense and all these characters interacting in these very like well um established like environments like he's it's a really masterful well done cartoon so i don't know i i feel there's not much comic culture in scotland and england Mm -hmm. like i mean i was little when i left but i gone back to visit and it just doesn't have like a comic book culture the same way as like america does um i've talked to european people about this they think it has to do with catholicism um <laughs> that hmm. the, the the countries where Catholicism is sort of dominant actually have more of a cartooning culture, and then uh, places like England, it's more a writing culture, like books and you know and novels, and it's not so much about comics. I don't know if that's a Protestant thing. That's a half baked theory that a French person once once proposed to me, and I always liked it. But uh, yeah, so I think most people in England will have heard of the Bruins and or Willie. Um, I'm not sure how many people read that stuff. And then the strips like the Beano and the Dandy mm-hmm. and Wizard, like these weekly kids comics that I read a lot of when I was growing up. Yeah, like I, I couldn't get enough of that stuff. Did I answer the question? Because I'm not sure how to how to put him in with Scott Adams or Ernie Bushman. I think that uh, probably well known and relatively well respected. <laughs> yeah, I think you'd said there were two. Uh, so who's the person who's not the the or Willy or Willy uh, cartoonist? So there's a strip called Orwelly, and there's a strip called The Bruins, and it might be the same cartoonist. Okay. Someone probably knows. They have a very similar look about them, but it might not be the same cartoonist. I mean, these are strips that were that uh, came out sort of post-World War II in the newspapers type of, type of comics. So I'm, I'm not totally sure who the artists are. And I'll ask you question number three. What's the most widely loved comic you can't connect with? Um, well, uh, this one sort of sucks because uh, the answer is, uh, honestly, it's Jack Kirby. Really? <laughs> and it's that I never found a way in when I was younger. Uh, my first exposure to Jack Kirby, I mean, I like Jack Kirby, and every time it's a Jack Kirby's birthday, and I see like people posting stuff, I'm like, I really like these images. Like, I think these are amazing images. But I never know where to sort of start with it, and I have trouble getting past the fact that... I've never really sort of been able to like kind of like psych myself up to actually like read through like the continuity, like the of the like new gods and all that sort of stuff. Probably you're gnashing your teeth hearing that. No, you'd be surprised you say- actually, uh, because I I am thoroughly a Kirby convert, but it happened into my mid to late twenties. I'm in my early thirties now, and it wasn't until then that Kirby really clicked. So I think there's hope for you yet. Uh, well, what is the way in? Because 
for so me, little, I read some Machine Man and I read some Captain America. And it actually always disturbed me because I was so used to sort of like the more than Neil Adams, John Byrne style of art, comic art. And I sort of was like very sort of attached to that. So it was sort of upsetting to me, uh, like the way that uh, he, Jack Kirby drew. But yeah, so that's so I mean, to cut you off. What would what would you say would be like sort of a good way in? For me, uh, 70s Captain America, his mid-70s return to Marvel, Captain America okay. run, was what really made things click. 70s Kirby in general really does it for me. Uh, and it may be because, in part, it's really not encumbered by continuity uh, to the okay. degree you might expect. Even with New Gods, where there's an elaborate mythology present, it and this is with, with no disrespect intended to Kirby, it materializes in such a sort of spontaneous, piecemeal way that it first these comics first and foremost have the charm of you know a master practitioner having to put out multiple books every month. Okay, I feel stupid now for having admitted that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean the New God stuff is tricky. I'd say not because of continuity, but because some of the series are measurably worse than the others. It's my opinion that the Jimmy Olsen books he did, which feature the New Gods and the Newsboy Legion pretty heavily, are, you know, they're, they're uh, inferior books to the New Gods or Mr. Miracle series, which are, okay. yeah, more, the characters are more dynamic, I don't know, more operatic, which is always when Kirby's at his best. Yeah. I, uh, the other one I was never able to get into, and a lot of people uh, really quite liked, was um, Lucerabus. Um, did you ever manage to get into that? Uh, let's see. Do you mean Commandy? No, no, sorry. I'm talking, I've changed subjects. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, brought up, I brought up Dave Sim. Ah, gotcha. All right. <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to like derail what you were saying. No, no, I hear you. I, you know, neither have I. Really, there too. It was, you know, for a variety of reasons, Dave Sims' place in the canon, I think, is uh, diminished or it exists now with serious qualifications. But yeah, my, with, I, I don't know about you, but with me, my position there uh, became with the number of good comics uh, in the world that you can read that uh, are not created by raging misogynists that I don't know. <laughs> I can't imagine making the time for Sim anytime soon. I mean, like, I, I had sort of a chance early on before I, like, knew any of that stuff, and I just, you know, and I had friends who just loved it, um, but that was just another thing I wasn't able to click with. But I suppose it doesn't really answer the question because it's no longer widely loved. It's uh, it's universally disdained. Yeah, uh, but you know what? 70s Kirby, or Kirby in general, certainly fits the bill. But, yeah, I would say I would say don't give up on Jack Kirby if you've got the chance to continue exploring for... No, I feel yeah. I feel like that's a shortcoming. I don't know if people answer that question feeling like they're they're. Well, actually, I've heard most of your podcasts, and usually people answer it worrying that they're going to offend somebody who may be listening. It's true. It's you usually know? more contemporary. <laughs> it's like I don't like Tom Kaczynski. <laughs> that's a joke. I like Tom Kaczynski. Yeah, me too. Recent guest of the podcast. All right, question number four is, you can send one comic back in time to yourself at age 14. What is that comic? I think for age 14, uh, I probably wish, I do wish that I had discovered um, things like 8-Ball and Hate um, probably about exactly three, four or five years earlier than I did because 
that stuff, I ex- was exposed to it in art school, and it really changed the way I was approaching comics and thinking about it. And you know, I got super. It's like a second comic awakening mm-hmm. kind of thing. Like you know, I I grown up reading some of these uh you know some of these British comics, and then there was a UK version of the Transformers comic that I like loved. And I moved to America when I was twelve, and discovered the Marvel universe, and just was like a super fan of Marvel, the John Byrne and uh, Walt Simonson and, and like all that sort of uh, late 80s early 90s period Marvel mm-hmm. um, but it was very hung up on like you know the the characters and the universe and all that stuff and I just would have liked to have been exposed to more interesting types of things like a little earlier um, like I would love to have been reading 8-Ball um, when it was coming out like I caught it right at the tail end probably like the last four or five issues I caught as they were being published you know, that's like 16, 17 issues, I guess, that, uh, you know, I could have been reading. And that would have been like a very cool thing to to be reading. Same thing with hate. I was, yeah, I just didn't, you know, there's not a lot of opportunities um, sort of in those days to sort of even find out about that stuff. At what point in all of that did you begin to consider yourself a cartoonist? Uh, I, I mean, I always wanted to, I was always just drawing comics. Um, I was throughout like my school years, I was making my own super, I was creating my own characters. I spent like a long time working on my own sort of Marvel Universe like strip that I had. This idea I had it was called the Sentinel of Liberty, and it was set in the future uh, where Captain America took over the mantle of Thor, hmm. and uh, Hitler came back from the dead, and he was actually the Dark Phoenix, and it involved all the characters. And I, I like I was, probably two years of high school, I was working on this thing wow. showing my friends. <laughs> like, and they thought it was very cool um, I'm like I should get that published by Marvel and so then I was making comics and I was self-publishing um, in high school like with a friend like my own uh, character like we had our guys we had our, our superhero guys that we, we self-published zines um, and then when I went to college I had to major in painting because at that point in 19 because uh, it was 95 um, a lot of schools, you know, cartooning as an option really wasn't yet that wasn't yet that yet there. Um, so I chose painting. But it was actually Evan Dorkin came to my school um, in my freshman year and like gave us sort of a talk to like um, like a like a small cartoonist club that we had. And it was him who sort of actually like basically explained, you know, told us all about this stuff that I'd never heard of all his work and you know and then stuff that was being published by Fantagraphics and Toronto Quarterly. And so it was just like I was set on like this new discovery, um, like adventure. It was great. So always though a cartoonist. I sort of never wasn't doing that. Like throughout college, I was doing a daily strip for um, the school newspaper. Like I did that for about four or five years, and then I was self-publishing stuff immediately after college too, and trying to and sending it to Fantagraphics in the hopes that it would get picked up and, and all that. Well, you were really ahead of your time with those Marvel mashups. My impression is that half their line now is uh, a Hulk with Wolverine claws or a Wolverine with a Venom symbiote on it. Uh, is, that, like, is that the idea? I think so. I think it's, yeah. Uh, if Evan Dorkin hadn't led you astray, you could have a a clutch gig right now. <laughs> well, that wouldn't be so bad. I wouldn't mind that. <laughs> yeah, I, saw, I think I saw a picture of the Hulk with Wolverine claws online the other day is that is that i guess that must be a story that's happening i think so for question number five on the podcast uh typically we ask you 
How much do you think about readers when you're making a comic? But for you, I was curious how much that varies between your narrative comics, something like Angie Bunchilati and, you know, the type of work you do for a nib, if uh, for your nonfiction or autobiography work, if a reader is more in the fore because there's a, a, a need to be understood or uh, less in the fore just because you're describing things that happen to you. Um, the you know all the the facts are right in front of you. I'd say that I am in recent years thinking about more than I ever did. Um, I think when I was a young person, it just didn't occur to me to you know to think about whether or not anyone would enjoy the Sentinel of Liberty comic. And then I went through a, you know when I got into like alternative comics, I was very much into this idea of you know like you know I don't care about readers and I no one should edit this. I shouldn't have feedback. And I have real mixed feelings about that these days because I think it was sort of a mistake to not consider readers. But I also know that there are comics that I just wouldn't have made otherwise, like had I been like more concerned about like the reader. Sure. Like Freddie and me, like, you know, the joke of that book is supposed to be this long, self-indulgent, you know, graphic novel about a very simple topic, which is I like Queen. And, like, so the joke is, like, it's my Bohemian Rhapsody. It's this mm-hmm. massive, like, flowery, um, you know, book broken into these different segments. And, like, and I thought it was hilarious. Probably uh, it could have been edited into, you know, a more pleasurable reading experience. But I didn't care <laughs> in those days. That was, like, a big thing. Like, I don't care, you know, like, because it was, like, the idea of comics as art was very new to me. And I was just very, like, sort of, like, chest beating about it. And then Troop 142, which I do think is a very strong story, there's choices I made in there, like how horrible people are. I think I would be more self-conscious about now um, to sort of go as far as I did with like, you know, the way people are treating each other and to sort of just be as raw as possible, like with the with the way kids are. It's kind of funny because like now I have a child who's sort of bumping up to this age and I'm like, all the horrible shit is happening. Sure. <laughs> and I'm, like, and I'm like, oh, yeah, this I kind of forgotten about that from, uh, you know, about uh, 2010. You know, I sort of put that put that in the past, and and that's all kind of coming back. Like, uh, you know, kids really are cruel, and, like, that's what that was about. Um, and then Angie Bongelotti, like, 100%. I wouldn't have written that book. I don't know if I still would have ever written that book. Like, like I, I have very, like, conflicted feelings about that book. Um, but I do know that uh, if I'd been more self-conscious about a reader, I, I probably wouldn't have done almost any of it like the way I did, but I was just very much like, I'm going to go offline, make this thing and I'll present it. And, and as you, you probably know that like I it came out, no one bought it. And, you know, and I, and it was like a little, like I, it was like a big uh, sort of shock to me because I thought there'd be more readers there from like troop 142 and stuff. Yeah. I, I read I, the piece that went viral in the, the period after that book's publication. Let me, let me ask you yeah. a question about that book. Cause I reread it recently in anticipation for this, in terms of the things you look back on and you are trying not to put words in your mouth, but self-conscious about, or you might conceive of differently. Uh, is it more in terms of say the sex in that book? Is it more in terms of, I don't know, drilling down so deeply with the politics of the characters or what, what do you think in that book? If there were any, I don't know, barriers to entry, what do you understand those to be in hindsight? Uh, in terms of what I feel self-conscious about, is like all of it. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> because the sex stuff, and, you know, it's me as a writer, like, working through some things. There's politics, and I write about politics now. 
and I try to be uh, I try to not be self-conscious about like what if this doesn't go over right and that's happened to me like where it sort of isn't getting the response I was hoping it would get but in that book specifically like I feel like I personally was sort of working through my own political mindset um, and I sort of feel like I came to a conclusion at the end but like there's a lot I feel like there's ugly things politically in the book I haven't really looked at it since it's been published I can't really remember but uh, like I feel like I was just trying to like sort of work through like points of view and stuff like that that um you know, that I feel like I would be very self-conscious to write about now. I think that, you know, there is this feeling of this, you know, that didn't really exist maybe like even just like five, six, seven years ago of there being like a very permanent kind of audience, like, you know, giving opinions on things like kind of like in real time, you know, this sort of like permanent roar of the Internet, which I really like in a lot of ways. And I feel like I'm thriving a bit creatively, like in it. But I, I just wouldn't have written that book like now in the same way it wouldn't be possible like and it sort of makes me sad in a little way that you know as self-conscious i am about a lot of it um i don't know wouldn't be able to repeat it well going back uh, a little earlier again with respect to the uh i don't know the chest thumping massive book producing sort of ethos you know on, on the one hand People of all sorts are capable of, of you know, gross self-indulgence. But um, some of your, your work, uh, especially uh, in Rules for Dating My Daughter, is about, you know, it, it at least touches on toxic masculinity. So yeah. or without, you know, drawing uh, too neat a bow on things or putting words in your mouth, how much overlap would you say there is between your changing ethic as an artist and detoxifying as a, a male person? Well, I think a lot. A lot. Because I think detoxifying is like a real thing that is happening. Um, it's happening to me, I hope. Um, and I feel like it's happening to other cartoonists that I know who sort of in my same, you know, like uh, like by Zach from uh, Process Party. Sure. Um, we talk about this a bunch on the show, like this sort of feeling like, you know, we're really trying to detoxify. So, yes, I, I think a good thing is to admit that like, I sort of feel like uh, I'm hoping that I'm improving as a person. And I don't think you, I guess it's weird because when you come out of the nineties, it's very hard to like, to get to drop that sort of idea that like, you know, art doesn't apologize. And like, you know, you shouldn't apologize for making art. You shouldn't, uh, you know, you, you're not doing something wrong by making art. But then I also agree with a lot of the ideas that, you know, like you are putting ideas into the world and, and maybe it's actually not subversive to be putting in certain toxic ideas. Maybe that's actually just playing to like the status quo. Like, you know, you feel like you're being shocking when you're, you know, when all your, the people who are reading it are all the same demographic as you. And you're like, yeah, see what I put down. But then as you, as the people who are reading and writing comics starts to widen, you realize that like, would I really like be like putting this in front of like, you know, like other, you know, other people? Yeah. So like, a, I, I feel like it's a constant source of conflict. And I don't think I'm the only person who sort of has that. Like, cause I think there's a lot of this positive photo, this sort of the, to kind of like just make it and don't think so much about like you know how people react to it like be true like that's a good thing um but i also think it's good to sort of do a lot of self-examination and hopefully like i try to just be kind of moving forward like in my work and i'm trying to i'm hoping the changes that i try to see in me like reflect in the work too right i'm sure that's an attitude that can really serve a person's work sometimes also lead them astray sometimes but uh like you said, with respect to the historical moment of the 90s, say, uh, like, like I mentioned, I'm a little younger, but I can 
easily see how that attitude was more common when people maybe thought they were living at the end of history, like they say, as opposed to right yeah. now where we are, you know, facing creeping American fascism in a, in a very real way. <laughs> that too. This sort of like, you know, the, it was, it did feel like, well, you know, it's, it's all okay now, but now does it really feel like, you know, we sort of realized nope. that we weren't right. All right, let me let me ask you a, a question. Uh, we may have touched on it a bit with with the uh, fallout of Angie Bungiolati, but question number six is: What's the closest you've come to quitting cartooning? I come close to quitting mostly after I publish a book, and uh-huh. uh, so it's happened to me every time. And it's not actually because of like you know response necessarily. Perhaps it is, but it's also just sort of this feeling of that being sort of like emptied out and like I'm an un not knowing like what sort of thing to be working on next like for me is like a very anxiety inducing place to be mm-hmm. like sort of I do really like to sort of like kind of have my comics that I'm sort of mulling over like at all times and that's really why I was like very good with making graphic novels because it's sort of like I could spend like a couple years there sure and now that I'm doing these sort of rapid um more rapid uh, shorter pieces like you know i still actually do have these sort of down spots after even when they get published uh, unless i happen to have like something else lined up but i don't always so it's kind of like there's always this sort of trough or valley that i that occurs i've had a real hard time after freddie and me actually because freddie and me was the one where it was like it's my first book and it was published by a large publisher and all these things were like you know i sort of felt like okay well i'm set for life you know i'm published by these people and you know i'll be traveling with the uh, Salman Rushdie, <laughs> you know, and things like that. Well, he's my contemporary now. We have a, we share a publisher, and then like sort of like when that didn't amount to much, and I and that publisher wasn't so interested anymore because the book had not really done what they wanted it to do. Um, I, that was the closest I came because I didn't know what people wanted, and I really did actually go through a period where I was trying very hard to like try to think of what people would want to see from me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of like went in a couple of different directions that were like very like frustrating and like weren't really me being like doing something I was that interested in, but like just attempting to sort of like, okay, I got to fix this mess that I made from like, you know, having, you know, a comic out that, that you know, didn't sell as well as they wanted it to. Um, it's kind of funny because that then turned into True Point of War 2 where I kind of just went the opposite direction, decided to just make this comic that I'd sort of been trying to make for years and mm-hmm. years. Like I stopped and started it a number of times. Um, and just sort of like go all in, you know, and just be as ugly as it is. So I never will quit. I don't think because I just sort of haven't, even though I've had many reasons to. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you definitely start that feeling like, why? What could I do with my life if I wasn't like so focused on this? Because I mean, I've always generally had day jobs. I have a family. You know, it's kind of like I could, I could be a bodybuilder. I could, I could put all this, you know, effort into something else. You know. Yeah, have a bodybuilding podcast as a compliment. <laughs> Yeah, good. Uh, now, I, I'm curious now, when you released Freddie and Me, or rather, when you were creating Freddie and Me, and you were doing it for a large publishing house, did you not receive much editorial pushback then? What happened with that book was um, I started writing it uh, probably in 2004, 2005, and it actually took me three years to write. And I didn't, I made it without. I made a lot of it without a publisher lined up, and then mm-hmm. for a period, Ad House was going to be the publisher. Spitzer liked it, and he was going to publish it. At that period in time was when 
the graphic novel as like a serious thing started to happen. Right. Um, Persepolis um, and Fun Home, uh, somewhere around there, you know, it, it became like a thing. Like, you know, graphic novels went from like being like something I was embarrassed to mention to people when I was like go on a date or whatever, like in 2000. So like five years later, like if I say I'm a cartoonist, like that sort of impresses people. So when I uh, got in contact with a, an agent and then got lined up with Bloomsbury, um, and then also Jonathan Cape was the UK publisher, mm-hmm. um, it was very close to done. And I did, I did get some editorial feedback, but sort of like once the main, it was almost practically done. And... I sort of I had a little bit of that attitude of like you can't edit comics. Uh-huh. It takes too long. Like I'm I'm doing this with a brush, you know, on a giant piece of, you know, uh, cold press illustration board. You know, I'm not redrawing any of it. <laughs> which, uh, which I do. That's another thing where I feel like I would do differently. Not necessarily make the edits they were saying, but like I sort of this like a uh, stubbornness about not wanting to edit. Um, I, I don't feel that way anymore. But I did. I just was very insistent on like it. It needs to be like you know. It has to be this loaded, mm-hmm. <laughs> gigantic thing. It's what it has to be. And then there's just in publishing like things. I think this happens to some people. This must happen from time to time. But I was in a situation where the acquiring editor who bought my book quit like a month. Like within the months of like my book. I guess it must have been within a year of my book coming out. Uh, I think he acquired the book and then quit sometime very soon after because I never met him. I uh, never had any interaction with the person who bought the book. And I got put with uh, a person who was working on PR at uh, Bloomsbury, who was a really nice person. And she did give me some edits, but she was just sort of like, I had to sort of got this book landed on her, I guess. So there really wasn't that much given. Like it was sort of like, this is what it is. And like, how can we just sort of like clarify a few things? Sure. Make like you know a few like transitions more clear, and I just like added a few things in, in here and there. Um, so I think that's very particular to, uh, to what went on with that editor. Maybe that editor, had he stayed, would have, um, would have been more engaged. The funny thing is, though, I always sort of, I had a little bit of regret. Like I wish I'd gone with Ad House because I know Ad House would have done like an amazing job with the book, like uh, production wise, and like it sort of like, kind of fit in with you know sort of art comics, um, rather than. You know, rather than where it was going, and I doubt, I, I'm sure Chris Pitzer would have given me no editorial feedback either. But maybe it just sort of would have been like more naturally at home there. So that's that's sort of a bit of a, my whole career is a lot of regrets <laughs> and rethinking. <laughs> but you know, I've been at it a while, so I have uh, plenty of opportunities to sort of be like, well, I messed that up, made a bad choice. Um, yeah. Speaking of of advice, uh, question number seven is: What's the best advice you've heard about making comics? You, of course, you and Zach. Have process party, which is, you know, in, in one sense, completely about that. So I, I hardly know where to start, but I will uh, throw the question out there. The advice I would follow now, I mean, people make different types of comics. I personally have sort of to, I've moved more towards, like, the writing side, like the focus on, like, you know, writing a good comic, like, you know, that makes sense. Like, so I don't know how to advise someone who's trying to make, like, a Gary Panther-type comic or anything like that. But I think that I feel strongly that you should work on small paper. You shouldn't be spending... I don't know. Because <laughs> I, like, I sort of joke just now about like regrets, but I feel like everything you do sort of gets you to the next place. So I don't think there's like wrong things to do, but I, it doesn't hurt to like sort of think about a readership. It doesn't hurt to like consider, you know, like if you actually want to do this, 
your chances are better of continuing to do it like if you can start to like get some momentum so like to think about like people reading it and to consider like editorial feedback i think is a good thing but then that part then me from 20 when i'm 22 years old is like yelling at me in the back of my head uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> you sell out <laughs> uh so yes I, I i think small paper is really a, a good thing to do i think that uh you know i did freddie and me on pay paper that was a uh, like uh, it was something like 24 inches high, gigantic. I did it with a brush, and like it was like I could do two pages a week, and it took years, and and it just could have done a lot of different things had I been working smaller, which I did with Troop 142. And I banged that thing out. It was awesome. Is the benefit of small paper for you largely that it helps you avoid getting too precious? Too precious? I think it just uh, facilitates like getting it done quicker. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally do a lot of writing while I'm cartooning. Like in the cartooning, I've not traditionally been someone who sort of like has a script and like translates that script directly. I sort of, you know, a lot happens once it hits the page. Um, so I always felt like, you know, taking my time was good because like you're writing while you're drawing like continuously. So if it's taking forever, like you're, you're just writing it that much more, but you don't need to do it to that degree. Like, you know, you can do a page or so in like a day. And for me, it's just about like, you know, like, moving ahead and get and accomplishing something like I did troop 142 very quickly um, on smaller paper. And, and I think that's a good advice. That's good advice, everybody. <laughs> now I feel like we've talked about regrets a bunch already. So I, I hesitate to ask question eight, but it is what's the worst decision you've made as a cartoonist? Um, I think it's kind of funny. I hope I have not come off as regretful because I don't feel that way. <laughs> I just sort of feel like I've learned a lot of lessons because um, I don't actually regret very many things. The only thing I probably do regret at this point, like if I'm kicking myself, is that I I didn't let myself sort of like um, get into social media sooner. I wish that I had been on Twitter working harder at Twitter earlier, and that sounds like an awful thing to say, but it's just sort of like I think the truth of publishing is that that stuff helps, and I really was very resistant to it. I had an account and I deleted it at one point and was off, off for a year or so and I got back on and starting from scratch is challenging like it would have been better to not been so opposed to that that aspect of the, a writer's career as i was because that is part of a writer's career you know nowadays didn't used to be and it's probably nice when it didn't have to be but it, you know I, I feel like it is do you agree yeah i'm not used to like i'm not used to being the subject of podcasts it's very hard for me no you're <laughs> you're doing great and yes i'm like i'm sure like anything else Anything else would be untrue. I'm sure, you know, the Chris Wares of the world, they, they'll probably manage not being on Twitter. But for, you know, for nearly everybody else, like it or hate it, Twitter does help you get, uh, you know, that dreaded word exposure. Yeah, it absolutely can help you cultivate an audience. Yeah, and there will always be exceptions, too. You know, um, I think being off Twitter didn't matter when... Uh, you know, the man Booker committee put Nick Giornazzo on the short list. But yeah, these things are always, these things are always the exceptions. No, I think they check that. I think they, like, what's his follower count? You know, <laughs> how much engagement is he getting? Uh, you know, his daily tweets. Yeah, I just, there's no reason to be like, think myself above it. And it would have, it would have been a helpful thing. Like I've been more active on it these days. And I feel like it, that's just where people are. And you can't like get around that. Yeah, I think if you if you like Twitter at all, or if like you like it sometimes, even if it's uh, important, it's also 
if you're talking about engaging with readers, it's something you can do very passively. Being on Twitter as an artist, uh, I don't think means having to promote your work in an aggressive way. Although, you know, that said, I'm I'm always super self-conscious when an episode of this comes out that I probably uh, err on the side of promoting it way less than I should, which is my fault. I hope, hey, you have to get over that. Yeah, I know. And I'm, oh, this is crucial, maybe. It's, it's always easier advice to give than to take. It is, for, it is for me, at least, uh, the obvious benefits of promoting your stuff on Twitter. But, yeah, it's true. Who could argue? All right, and I'll ask you question number nine now. What work from another medium, let's, let's say accepting Queen, has influenced you the most? Probably Boogie Nights. Really? Um, not very many movies they have aged well for me. Um, like, you know, the stuff that I loved doesn't necessarily remain the thing I love, but I love Boogie Nights. I think it's a perfect movie. It's so funny. I love this, like, I love, like, all these, like, well-defined characters. I love what's set in a specific place, which is, like, a thing I I really enjoy. I love the music. I I don't know. I just think it's a perfect movie. I think it's, I think Mark Wahlberg is hilarious in it, and (laughs) I just, I could watch it over and over again. I don't know how much that influences my work. I mean, I feel like it does. I feel like I, there's certain things I do, like, I do, you know, like, if I think about, like, Troop 142, and some of my some of my graphic novels, like this idea of like a cast of characters. Yeah, there are some ensemble pieces in your yeah. your catalog. I, I think oh. it's such a shame Mark Wahlberg apparently regrets doing that movie and maybe, maybe does not acknowledge just how much it helped him get to where he is. It is a shame because that's like the only really good Mark Wahlberg <laughs> movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like he's amazing in it. Uh, and... Yeah, I think it's, it's wonderful on every level, and I, I just rewatched it again like a week ago. Um, I, like, I put it on while I'm working, because I, I know that one. So, yeah, uh, I, I'd say that it's hard for me to identify the specific things that um, are influenced on it, and it's hard for me to talk like articulately about what is so great about it, but, yeah, I love it. And question number 10 is, aliens have made contact with Earth, and they seem benevolent, but we still want to make a good impression You've been selected to introduce them to comics. What do you show them first? You know, uh, what came to mind first is uh, the work of Eleanor Davis. Oh, sure. Um, her comics are about things, um, which is something that I like a lot. You know, the, they're like they're specifically written about like topics, sure, um, like and full of content. But they're also just like so like amazing to look at, and so well cartooned, um, and so like sincere. I, just, I, I think her stuff is so great, and it seems to just sort of, like, click with people. And I feel like those aliens would come down and be like, yes, <laughs> you are a sensitive people, human race. <laughs> <laughs> I can see from, you know, these these Eleanor Davis comics. Uh, so that's what occurred to me. Did you read that comics journal uh, thing that Austin English wrote about clarity? I did. Uh, it's an issue I wrestle with a lot. Like, I think comics are great at clarity. Um, I read Austin's piece and I liked it, um, though I liked the, some of the cartoons he was being critical of. Yeah, I, well, I guess for the reason I brought it up is just to think about like how I think Eleanor kind of like does the best of all worlds and sort of like you know there being a clarity to her purpose and what she's like trying to get across or express, um, but also just sort of like so much in the drawing that like you know it needs to be drawn and cartooned. Uh, it seemed like a non sequitur for me to bring that up, but. Uh, um, it's something I do think about in my work because I am doing a lot of what could be very on the edge of explainer type comics. Now that I'm writing about, you know, I'm writing political um, stuff about families and philosophical stuff, and I just, and I really try to achieve that balance. 
I don't know. Should I keep going? No, we can end on that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, as I said, I'm not used to being the person being interviewed. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Mike. Thank you.